Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. Just Ryan Holstead today. Ryan Quinn will be back next episode, so hopefully you guys can stay awake as I drone on with my monotone. Before I begin, I just want to thank everyone who's been listening along. It's truly been rewarding to see people from all over the world keeping up with the, our discussions. We're making the assumption that these have been helpful to everyone based upon that. Certainly, if you feel that way, please rate and review us. It helps others find our discussions. And if there's anything that you think would make this more of a useful discussion for you, please feel free to send us a message on our Twitter or email so we can continue to adapt and improve it as we move along into the remaining tumor sites. So we've now uh, completed our discussions around breast and GI malignancies. We'll be eventually going back to those and updating them as the evidence uh, continues to develop and have already a few ideas for an additional episode here or there to add on at the end of each of these series. We had planned to move next into lung cancer as that's one of the next largest arenas. However, thinking ahead at lung cancer, the GU malignancies, eventually melanoma, time and again, a fundamental backbone of these treatments nowadays includes using immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I thought it'd be very helpful to do a couple episodes kind of highlighting the immune checkpoint inhibitors and how these are different than chemotherapy. As no disease site has benefited more from immune checkpoint inhibitors than melanoma, that will be our next discussion. But today I just wanted to do a little background on these fascinating uh, new tools in our arsenal. I've heard some people refer to these as the third generation of systemic therapy, with uh, chemotherapy being the first, targeted molecular oncology being the second, and then immune checkpoint inhibitors being the next generation of a, of a unique mechanism designed to treat various solid tumors. Immunotherapy has unique mechanisms, toxicities, and concepts, so it's important to understand how this differs from other treatments that you may be using. And when we're talking about immunotherapy, we're specifically referring to treatments that activate the immune system to target cancer. And although this is the most recent to make its way into standard practice for solid tumor oncology, it's one of the oldest origins. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Dr. Coley would discovered a, a toxin that was basically extracted from bacteria, and he would inject this into subcutaneously into the skin of patients with various tumors. This did lead to occasional responses, and there's a very fascinating paper published in 1910, included in the show notes, where he shows before and after photographs of the response to these um, toxins. At the time, the theory of the immune system was not yet understood. We didn't even really have cellular models at that time. And through the subsequent decades, we better began to understand how this uh, phenomenon had occurred. In the molecular era, less crude approaches were used rather than injecting pure bacterial toxins. We would use medications like interferon alpha, which would basically activate a cytokine storm, much like what a bacterial toxin would do. And these had some modest efficacy, just like the bacterial toxins, but also were very toxic, just as um, injecting pure toxins into the body would be. And although they did have some efficacy in tumors that otherwise had very few other options, namely renal cell carcinoma and melanoma that were notoriously chemo-insensitive, these effects were not of long duration. Further developments in research looking at the tumor cells for some of these uh, immune-sensitive cancers did begin to recognize that within the pathology and the biopsies, there were many lymphocytes that were surrounding the pathology of interest. Uh, These became described described as tumor-invading lymphocytes. We've refer- referred to them in the past when we talked about the CPS-PDL1 score, and those are the, the cells that are surrounding the tumor stroma that um, may or may not be expressing PDL1. There's a big question of why these lymphocytes were not attacking the cancer, which is an, has neoantigens and should be immunogenic, especially when in some patients we do see that um, the immune system is able to resolve certain tumors. Uh, melanoma being a famous one where sometimes, very rarely, you'll see that a nevus disappear, and that's thought to be due to uh, uh, the immune system resolving this lesion. 
in the 2000s, a, a series of papers came out that explained this uh, phenomenon, and this ended up leading to Nobel Prize. And this was the discovery and description of the immune checkpoint. So immune checkpoints are basically cell surface receptors shown on tumor cells, shown on all um, eukaryotic cells um, that will tell the immune system what is self and what is not self. In many cancers, these self receptors are actually upregulated. So even if there's new antigens present, the presence of something like PDL1 or CD80 will bind to PD1 or CTLA4 on the immune cells and essentially lead to cell energy, so decreased immune activity and allow tumor cells to continue to persist and grow. Once these receptors were discovered, it was not long later that monoclonal antibodies were developed to block these receptors and that these became the immune checkpoint inhibitors such as pembrolizumab, nivolumab, ipilimumab, tremulimumab, all these different drugs that we have previously discussed. The first targeted uh, molecule to be developed were the CTLA-4 inhibitors. So this is uh, ipilimumab or tremulimumab. And it became early discovered that in most models, removing CTLA-4 from these models led to widespread inflammatory response. These CTLA-4 molecules are widely distributed on many cells. And ultimately, uh, ipilimumab was trialed in melanoma patients, which at that time was a very difficult-to-treat disease with um, interferon being used. And they did find, compared to interferon alpha, ipilimumab did improve two-year overall survival from 14 to 22%. Such an increase in overall survival for melanoma was unheard of at the time. This quickly gained a lot of attention and, and excitement. There did seem to be a dose-response curve with higher doses of ipilimumab leading to a higher response. However, this was at the cost of an increasing risk of uh, immune toxicity. Not long later, the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors entered the arena. The PD-1, PD-L1 mechanism uh, works by blocking the PD-1 on PD-1 or the PD-L1 on the tumor cells or T cells, prevents that self-recognition signal and allows the T cells to kill the tumor cells. In a seminal trial initially published in the New England Journal and has since had over six years of follow-up, we found that the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab did increase melanoma survival up to 50% at five years. We'll be discussing this trial in more detail next discussion, but it's important here to show just how, how remarkable of a benefit this was. These combinations did increase the overall toxicity, which we'll get to in a moment. And since that time, there's been lots of different combinations and permutations of dosing, dose intervals, longevity of treatment, and incorporation of these medications in many various sites uh, with addition of different chemotherapies or molecular targeted agents agents with varying benefit. To date, no individual tumor site has responded as well as melanoma, and there's become a lot of interest in trying to find improved molecular targets and um, pathological studies to find out which patients with the other tumor sites are likely to benefit from these agents. So as I previously discussed, immune checkpoint inhibitors are different than chemotherapy and as well as molecular therapy. And it's important to keep in mind some of the unique considerations as you're considering prescribing these to a patient or encountering a patient on these agents in your follow-up. First off, these medications work by activating the immune system. So a specific population of patients who have autoimmune diseases will have a relative or absolute contraindication to the using of these medications. The reason being is it's well shown that immune checkpoint inhibitors can exacerbate underlying immune diseases, sometimes with lethal complications. Now, not all autoimmune diseases are made alike, with uh, hypothyroidism being un- unlikely to be exacerbated. In general, we can adjust the dose of Synthroid fairly safely, but underlying uh, inflammatory bowel disease, 
or even psoriatic arthritis can lead to very significant complications, rheumatoid arthritis being another um, notable autoimmune disease. And often in these patients were can be unable to give an immune checkpoint inhibitor, although as with everything in oncology, you have to balance the risk against the alternatives with your patient uh, who's being treated for the malignancy. Unlike chemotherapy, where we'll often see a response and measured in you know, weeks to months. The response immune therapy may be delayed for many months, um, sometimes three months or later. We previously had highlighted this with our um, mesac colon cancer discussion in patients um, with rapidly progressing disease. Often there was actually an early progression and complication in patients who got the immune therapy alone. There's also a phenomenon that's been discussed in the radiology literature of pseudoprogression, where the infiltration of T lymphocytes into the tumor stroma can actually lead to edema. And on a three-month interval CT scan, they may actually look like there's a progression in these tumors. Trialists have developed what's called an I-resist criteria, so resist being the criteria for response rates um, leading to trial approvals. Um, the I-resist criteria being incorporating for incorporating some additions to account for these pseudoprogression events. And if you do have a patient who on the three-month scan has slightly enlarged tumor without you know, significant new lesions being noted on the scan and without clinical decomposition, you'll likely continue the agent and get a short interval follow-up surveillance imaging. One other less well-described, although theoretical, complication of these agents is hyperprogression, not often seen in the melanoma or lung space, but occasionally seen in the colon cancer, gastric cancer literature. And this is uh, what appears to be an increased, an acceleration of tumor progression and very early decompensation. Unlike pseudoprogression, where the tumor is enlarged on the scan, but the patient's being clinically well, hyperprogression leads to a rapid decomposition in patient uh, uh, function, something to be mindful of in a patient who's clinically decompensating after their first dose of immune therapy. Another difference between immune therapy and chemotherapy is the duration of response. Often with chemotherapy, we'll expect a time-limited benefit. We'll see the tumor shrinks, and some tumor sites will continue the chemotherapy until progression or resistance occurs, and other chemotherapy regimens will give a time-limited either six months or a year of treatment and then discontinue, but often the expectation will be at some point the cancer will begin to grow. With immune therapy, there are a minority of patients who seem to have this prolonged duration of response. That may last for months, years, and in the case of melanoma, we're up to six years with, with a significant number of patients continuing to have their disease in remission. You'll see this described in some papers or publications of, as the tail of the curve, and that's referring to the Kaplan-Meier curves, which do appear to level out and stay flat without additional progression or death after a certain period of time. Although most impressive in melanoma, this is also seen in lung cancer, and to a lesser extent the other tumors, where progression still seems to be happening as we get longer follow-up in these MedStack diseases. Toxicities of immune checkpoint inhibitors are something that all treating oncologists to be well aware of and uh, vigilantly observing for. Unlike chemotherapy, which has predictive toxicities both in frequencies, timing, and management, immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicities, also known as immune-related adverse events, or IRAES, uh, may occur at any point in the course of treatment. These toxicities may occur even months after the discontinuation. It does appear, though, however, the most severe of these toxicities are most likely to occur within the first four cycles. And my suspicion is this is due to an underlying sensitivity or repressed autoimmune sort of process that gets activated with the immune checkpoint inhibition. The severity of these toxicities can um, range from a mild irritation such as a rash or hypothyroidism requiring um, addition of levothyroxine to treatment, or maybe severe and life-threatening, and deaths have occurred due to the immune toxicities. These toxicities are due to an overactive immune response on various organ sites and can affect any organ in the body, skin, GI tract, lungs, mucositis, pneumonitis, thyroiditis, myocarditis, 
If you can put itis at the end of something, it's likely to be a risk that you could encounter with your immunotherapies. Given these wide-ranging toxicities, it can be very difficult sometimes to diagnose these, and once again, a high vigilance is required, as well as important to give patient education. When these toxicities arise, it's thought to be due to accumulating immune response. So earlier recognition management is a good way to potentially avoid potentially a catastrophic complication or hospitalization. Different cancer centers will have different protocols for monitoring for these, and often this will include some lab work looking for certain things like markers of inflammation. To date, there isn't a standardized way of doing this, and having now worked at two different cancer centers, I've seen a very different way of uh, which labs are being checked for and at at what frequency. In general, however, you should be monitoring for the toxicities that could be asymptomatic, such as electrolyte abnormalities with a CMP prior to each cycle, hypothyroidism with a TSH being monitored intermittently, and a CBC as patients can also develop agranulocytosis or um, various autoimmune complications like ITP or hemolytic anemia. Although toxicities may be present in up to 30% of patients with single-agent immune therapy, the severe high-grade complications tend to be much less common on the order of 10% or less. This risk for complications goes up much higher in doublet therapy, such as with nivolumab and ipilimumab, where rates of toxicities are well above 50%, with high-grade toxicities uh, being greater than 30%. If you're spending your whole day in a a melanoma clinic, it's very likely you're going to be diagnosed as one or maybe two um, new immune toxicities as many of these patients will be on doublet immune therapy. The most common of these are, thankfully, the less severe, such as rash or hypothyroidism. The most common life-threatening or hospital-causing toxicities are colitis or pneumonitis. Colitis, thankfully, has become less life-threatening as education has improved and patients are being more educated to be monitoring for diarrhea. And if someone's having frequent bowel movements, that's a good reason to be quick to initiate um, management of these toxicities. Although very rare, the most lethal of immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicities is myocarditis, and mortality for that raises up to about 50%. In order to improve the management of these toxicities, there's a very helpful paper published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology by Dr. Brommer and colleagues, and this basically goes toxicity by toxicity and provides a a roadmap for both grading the level of toxicity as well as um, management for this. These management protocols are often dictated by various specialists, such as dermatologists or gastroenterologists. So you'll see that often the protocol in place will be very similar to how they manage other autoimmune diseases in their field. It is worth noting that the myocarditis in the Dr. Brommer manual does seem to be a bit outdated, and there's been subsequent papers that show any patient with myocarditis should get a high-dose corticosteroids of about 1,000 milligrams of methylprednisone for about three to five days. The evidence to support this is by a multi-group study that's been done in the United States, and the citation for this is in the show notes. And due to this, it's important to collaborate with your regional specialist, whether that's in gastroenterology, neurology, dermatology, rheumatology, to to help manage some of these complicated um, toxicities. Some of the larger cancer centers have already developed urgent care centers to help quickly assess patients either on chemotherapy or other therapies, and these have served as great ways of patients who are developing a toxicity be seen quickly by people who are familiar with the drugs and their toxicities. If you're working in a center without a cancer urgent care setup, it's important to engage your emergency department physicians, make them aware of these medications, and make sure that they're contacting the oncologist for anyone coming in for an undifferentiated complaint. It's worth mentioning that the Brommer paper does use a different grading of individual toxicities. This grading is based upon the common terminology criteria for adverse events, also known as the CTCAE. These are handy reference guides to use for any 
complication on therapy, which gives every toxicity a grade from one to five, one being the lowest level, often kind of more on the nuisance level, and five being a toxicity leading to death. Although these toxicity gradings were used for practical purposes for those running clinical trials, they have had um, a role in clinical practice as well. It is important to note, however, that not all grade three or four are made alike, and a grade three seizure is certainly a lot more severe than a grade three neutropenia that may just require monitoring until the counts recover. In general, uh, the management of these toxicities when uh, severe enough to warrant treatment is uh, with the utilization of corticosteroids. In uh, refractory cases or very severe toxicity, you may use high dose such as pulse dose like 1,000 milligrams of solumedrol daily or other immunosuppressive agents such as IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin, plasmapheresis, or uh, TNF-alpha inhibitors such as infliximab. Once again, if you're getting into a toxicity where you're thinking about using a more intensive immunosuppressive agent, please uh, ensure to utilize a subspecialist in your area who may be more up-to-date on the best way to approach some of these toxicities. The natural uh, follow-up question when using things such as corticosteroids or immunosuppressants is whether or not this is going to blunt the efficacy of the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Understandably, lowering immune activity would be thought to lower um, treatment benefit. There have been some retrospective and observational studies um, addressing this question and looking at the risk of disease recurrence after the utilization of immunosuppressant. And in general, there has not been a strong signal pointing to that this leads to worse outcomes. However, our goal is to limit corticosteroids if at all possible. With a high-grade toxicity, there's not not really much of an option other than to treat and prevent uh, further systemic harm. However, with lower-grade toxicity, such as a grade 1 diarrhea, which may be having two or three uh, loose bowel movements a day, you may be able to successfully manage this with Imodium alone, and it may not necessarily uh, progress further. Same could go with a mild rash, can be managed with topical corticosteroid creams. A similar thought process goes towards the utilization of corticosteroids prior to the initiation of immune therapy. Classic scenario is someone who has had a recent radiation to CNS metastases, and the question of being whether or not we can start immune checkpoint inhibitors immediately. And in general, the goal would be to wait till the corticosteroid taper is complete and the patient's off all corticosteroids prior to starting the immune checkpoint inhibitor. Of course, if there is concern for progressing disease elsewhere in the body, you may need to start at a sooner time. Another uh, question of interest is whether or not the presence of toxicities actually indicates a more robust immune response in the first place. And once again, this has been studied primarily with uh, retrospective studies as well as some post hoc uh, evaluations of prospective trials. There has been some suggestion that patients who develop immune-related adverse events are actually have a more prolonged duration of response. This is uh, subject to something called immortality bias, which is the patients who are most likely to respond or the most likely patients who are going to get diagnosis to develop an immune-related adverse event. Um, studies that have shown these better outcomes are not immune to underlying bias, but certainly uh, does not seem to be a significant harm. And if someone d- does have a severe enough toxicity to warrant um, holding drug or giving high-dose corticosteroids, you can feel somewhat reassured that holding the drug, um, patients may continue to have uh, ongoing response. This is especially important as uh, the history of an immune-related adverse event highly protects the risk of uh, recurrent immune-related adverse events, and recurrence of these toxicities occur up in uh, 30 to 50 percent, depending on the study that was done. So for very high-grade, life-threatening toxicities, you're really going to want to try to avoid uh, using these agents again. If patients do begin to have progression and they've had a high-grade toxicity, you may try to reach for non-immune-based therapy in certain scenarios where no other option is available. Your only option may be to re-challenge, but you'll have to monitor very closely for the risk of uh, recurrence of one of these toxicities. 
Lastly, uh, these are very costly drugs, and in the case of CTL-84 inhibitors, there does seem to be a dose-response curve. However, that has not been shown to be as uh, clear in PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. There's actually been at least one study uh, run out of India looking at a very low dose of nivolumab along with other low-dose chemotherapy in head and neck cancers and has found an increased benefit adding the immune checkpoint inhibitor to the low-dose chemo regimen. This will hopefully open the door to more trials and and trying to increase uh, access to these drugs in many countries and to more patients who may not have had access to the extreme cost of the higher dose uh, standard regimen. Ongoing questions are also on how long of this treatment is needed. Typical chemotherapy will have a response that, is typically, that would be expected to be time-limited in metastatic disease. However, immune checkpoint inhibitors seem to have a prolonged duration of response. So many trials are ongoing, seeing whether or not we need the exact number of cycles that were given in the trial, or can we get by with using reduced cycling, such as just to maximum response. These questions are all still ongoing, so I would still recommend using the standard regimen and being familiar with um, how long the drug was given in each trial. And it certainly can vary between a subsite and individual checkpoint inhibitor. Very briefly to tie everything together, this immune checkpoint inhibitors are novel agents utilizing the, a patient's immune system to attack the cancer. These may be given in combination with chemotherapy or other targeted agents. The strongest benefit has been in melanoma and followed by a non-small cell lung cancer. In other disease sites, uh, we've been finding that certain uh, molecular markers such as uh, microsalate instability or high CPS score can predict a response to these drugs, and many, many uh, trials are ongoing to look at more ways of giving these in an effective manner. The number of indications has grown exponentially, and um, will likely continue to do so. It is important for the provider to be familiar with the timing of onset of these drugs, some unusual presentations of things such as pseudoprogression on uh, surveillance imaging, as well as uh, management of their variable and sometimes lethal toxicities. Make use of subspecialists who are familiar with different toxicities and be well familiar with the um, references to use in order to quickly identify and effectively manage one of these toxicities without over-utilization of immunosuppressants, which will have an uncertain effect on the benefit of the drugs. Thanks again for staying with me. Uh, Ryan Quinn will be joining me again uh, next discussion, and we'll be moving into melanoma before moving on to lung cancer. Thanks as always. Take care. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking About Tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.